Open Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to this episode of Hope and Patience. You know what makes a show and keeps it going? You. When I launched Hope and Patience, I thought I would get a handful of mates and family tuning in in the UK. I obviously was hoping for more, but... So I hope you don't mind if I take a few minutes to appreciate you and say a huge hello to you all in Australia, Canada, Denmark, France, Germany, Guatemala, Hong Kong, Ireland, India, Indonesia, Islamic Republic of Islam, Italy, Latvia, Nigeria, Portugal, Russian Federation, Singapore, South Africa, Spain, Switzerland, Turkey, the UAE, of course the UK, and last but not least, the US. Now, on with today's episode, but first a few facts before introducing our guest. In most developed countries, 50% of food waste comes from the home. Reducing food waste is the number one solution to the climate crisis, according to Project Drawdown, coming above electric cars, solar power and plant-based diets. All of the world's near to one billion hungry people could be fed on less than a quarter of the food that is wasted in the US, UK and Europe. Shocking, but scarily true. Our guest today is Tessa Clark, co-founder with Sasha Celestial One of the global food sharing app Olio. Olio has been described by the Huffington Post as a lifeline and has over 2.3 million users. Attracting over $8 million in investment since 2015, Olio has harnessed retailers, manufacturers and home users into addressing food waste. Since its launch, 6.5 million food portions have been shared, saving an estimated 1 billion litres of water and 19.3 million car miles. Olio not only fights waste, but also creates vital connection with neighbours, community and sustainability. The latest features even allow you to give away non-food items and buy local homemade goodies too. So it's time to talk with our guest and hear their story. Welcome to H&P, Tessa. Hello, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here and it's a long intro because I just think that what you're doing is incredible and it's totally blown me away. So Tessa, it would be wonderful to hear how the creation of Olio came about and was it always your dream? Was it, was it always the plan? Um, so sadly, I have never had a dream. Uh, I was always frustrated as a child. People would always ask me what I wanted to be and I had absolutely no clue whatsoever. That's probably because I was brought up on a farm um, and I knew I didn't want to be a farmer, but I didn't actually have any other role models or access to any, any other sort of jobs that I could look to. So I grew up not having a clue what I wanted to be. I then went off and pursued what could be described as a fairly classic corporate career. Um, but the sort of transition to Olio and my entrepreneurial journey started about five years ago now, and it was through a seemingly inconsequential moment in my life. I was packing up my apartment because I was moving from living in Switzerland back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men said to me that I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. Now, because of my upbringing, I have a pathological hatred for food waste and I was not prepared to throw the food away. So much the irritation of the removal men, I stopped packing, bundled up my newborn baby and toddler at the time and set out into the streets, clutching this food, hoping to find someone to give it to. And I failed miserably. 
but I wasn't to be defeated. And so I went back to my apartment and when the packing men weren't looking, I smuggled the non-perishable foods into the bottom of my boxes. And that was just that sort of metaphorical light bulb moment, I guess, if you like, where I just thought, this is ridiculous. My choices between you know, potentially being a criminal smuggling this food across the borders or throwing this food in the bin, which to me seemed equally criminal. And I knew at that point in time there was an app for everything. And I couldn't believe there wasn't an app where I could let my neighbours know that I had this food and they could pop around and pick it up if they wanted it. So how did you then find, I don't know if you found Sasha, were you, but how did you two meet and then set up with the idea of Olio? How did it progress? So um, I had that experience and had that sort of idea along with actually loads of other ideas at the time because I was on maternity leave and I knew that I wanted to, um, I wanted to be inspired by my own life. So I, I was sort of 15, 20 years into a corporate career and, and whilst I had a CV that looked great on paper, it wasn't something I felt inspired by or proud of. I thought if I were to die tomorrow, I wouldn't be um, satisfied with this. And so Sasha and I had started looking to do something entrepreneurial together. And actually we were kind of working for over a month on one project, but we realized for a variety of reasons that just wasn't going to work. And so we were feeling very depressed and very blue. And I popped upstairs to put my baby to bed. And then I came downstairs and I said, Sasha, I've had this other sort of crazy idea, don't laugh, but, and I told her about the idea for Olio and um, she immediately got it. So she, uh, Sasha sort of like me, has had a fairly classic corporate career, but as her surname suggests, her surname is Celestial One, she was actually raised by hippies uh, in, in the US. So it, Olio, the idea of Olio appealed to her inner hippie and, and we had met studying for our MBAs at Stanford Business School about 15 years prior. And we did a sort of one hour mini MBA on the idea. And at the end of that hour, we were both absolutely committed to bringing Olio to life. And so Tessa, did you have to raise a whole lot of funds to get it off the ground? Not initially, no. Um, so we knew that we weren't going to be able to easily fundraise for uh, this rather peculiar sounding startup, which is a neighbor to neighbor food sharing app. Uh, and we were both on maternity leave at the time. So we, we knew that we needed to get the app up and running and off the ground somehow before we raised financing. So we knew that we'd have to invest essentially our life savings into making Olio happen at that point. But we're both quite risk averse actually. And we did not want to sink our life sa savings building an app that quite possibly people wouldn't want. And so briefly what we did, the first thing we did was we did the desk research and it uncovered a lot of the statistics that you've just shared, um, including also the fact that globally a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away and a landmass larger than China is used to grow food that's never eaten. It's quite unbelievable. It's absolutely staggering. And then plus we have, you know, that sort of where we are today and obviously you've, you've covered off the devastating environmental impact of food food waste but then as we look to the future we have another 2.2 billion people joining the planet to feed us all we need to increase global food production by 60 percent according to the fao and today we have no idea how we're going to achieve that so we did the desk research and we thought this is crazy we're sort of puzzling over how to feed 10 billion people and how to keep global warming within one and a half degrees, yet we're still throwing away a third of all the food we produce. So that was definitely a big tick in the box, but this is definitely a big problem um, that existed sort of beyond my unique experience. The second thing we did was 
to do some market research to understand if anyone even cared about this problem. And so we did a survey using SurveyMonkey. We uh, shared it on lots of Facebook groups. We got, I think, about 380 responses. And the key data point coming out of that was that one in three people told us that they felt physically pained throwing away good food. And we used deliberately extreme language like that um, really to kind of weed out the, yeah, food waste is bad. And so that was another big tick in the box. It was like, not only is it a big problem on paper, it's a problem that people care about. But that still didn't mean to say that people would take the next step in our hypothesis, which was that they would share their food with essentially a stranger. And we wanted to test that before building an app. And so how we did that was we invited 12 of the people who'd done the market research survey, who said they were physically paying throwing away good food, to take part in this slightly strange experiment where we put them on a WhatsApp group. And we said, for the next two weeks, if you've got any spare food, then here's a group of people you can share it with. And we waited with bated breath to see if anyone would share anything into this WhatsApp group. And after about 24 hours, they did. And then in the following sort of two weeks, we had quite a bit of sharing. And so we met with those people afterwards in the debrief and they told us three things. They said, one, you absolutely have to build this. Two, it only needs to be slightly better than a WhatsApp group, which is probably some of the best advice we've ever had. Uh, and three, how can I help? And so it was only once we'd been through that process that we were then ready to invest essentially our family savings and build an app it's so clever just to you know trial it on on whatsapp which must have been a really cheap way to see whether something was going to work or not yeah i mean it's, it was better than cheap it was free, yeah, uh, it was free I, exactly. I definitely encourage uh, anyone who's thinking about or in the early stages of starting up their own venture to think really hard and really creatively about what existing platforms there are that you can use to test your hypothesis. Because certainly for the vast majority of consumer-oriented startups, you can test the appetite um, by creating a closed Facebook group or seeing how many followers you can get on Instagram. There are lots of things that you can do that are free that will just really de-risk your idea. And, but much more importantly, give you real feedback from real people which is the vital thing. So Tessa, has COVID, it's a negative thing for everybody, but has COVID sort of helped the app gain more momentum? In a word, yes, um, it has. So when COVID first hit, sort of like everybody, we went into a bit of a tailspin. It was really, really not at all clear that a neighbour to neighbour food sharing app could continue to exist. But Sasha and I were determined that it should, especially through listening to our community who told us that actually we had a responsibility to keep going through COVID. And so we very quickly pivoted to introduce a no contact pickup model. And I would say that sort of in the first 10 days after lockdown, the number of listings coming onto the app fell by about 20 or 25%. But then from early April onwards, we've just had this massive hockey stick growth, the stuff of our dreams. Um, and I think that's happened for a number of reasons. First of all, you only have to see a few photographs of empty supermarket shelves to suddenly realize how precious food is. And as a result of that, people very instinctively wanted to stop wasting food. The second thing is that COVID laid bare for us all the horrific inequalities and hunger that we have in our communities today. And so many people, they wanted to do more than just stay home to help. They wanted to proactively reach out and support their local communities. And so that resulted in a, a massive burst 
of sharing via the app. Has it become almost the equivalent of an online food bank for key workers and all those poor people who've now found themselves without a job? I think the really important thing about what Olio does is it's about community and not charity. So absolutely, there are some people in our community who are going through really tough times and Olio is playing an invaluable role for them. But just as importantly, there are some people who aren't going through tough times um, and who are using the Olio app. And the reason why that's important is a couple of uh, factors. So the first is the sheer scale of food waste. It is much, much, much bigger than the number of hungry people that exist. So if we want to solve the problem of food waste, absolutely everybody has to get involved and everybody has to uh, rescue and save this food. And then secondly, um, we've spent quite a bit of time talking to people who are going through a tough time and what they tell us that they love most about Olio is precisely the fact that it's all about um, community. It's just positioned as a mainstream, sensible, common sense, sustainable thing to do. And as a result of that, there's absolutely no stigma whatsoever associated with using Olio. And that's really, really important. So what I've found with Olio, because I'm a, I'm a new user and I'm loving it, is that it's so easy to use. You know, whatever your age, whatever your skill set, it is simple and it's just very effective. And there's, as I was saying before, there's the non-food waste, uh, non-food stuff side and then all these homemade goodies that you can buy and, and help your community too. It's it's just, yeah. oh, it's just in my veins now, I think, Tessa. I think it's, <laughs> it's just very, the most very incredible thing. I'm very, very glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've worked really hard to make it as simple as possible to use. I, I sort of have my grandmother um, in my head um, as, as we design the product. Now, of course, it's never going to be perfect. And it's amazing how people do still... Um, struggle even when you've worked really really hard to make something as as clear as possible but broadly we do we do get that feedback absolutely that it's just really straightforward to use do you think um tessa that food waste will ever be reduced to near zero in the world that's a really interesting question so i hope that food waste gets reduced to virtually zero but i recognize that food surplus will not um and to a certain extent, as long as the food isn't wasted, it doesn't matter. So if we just take us in our homes, for example, mm -hmm. we are always going to want to open a fridge door and have a huge amount of variety of stuff to eat. We're always going to perhaps end up working late or we go away or you know, back in the pre-COVID days, we would socialize and over cater. There are, there are lots of things about sort of the modern life that make it very hard to perfectly predict and balance supply and demand of food in your home and what we say is it doesn't matter if you don't so long as that food doesn't go to waste if you fancy kind of getting a, a takeaway rather than cooking then so long as you're then sharing what was in your fridge with someone else and that doesn't go to waste then then it doesn't matter and it's the same with businesses and, and retail in particular no matter how good their demand forecasting tools get it will be impossible to be 100% perfect due to the vagaries of, of human nature and human life and weather and, and stuff like that. The key thing is to make sure that, that food is redistributed. Uh, and that's what our food waste heroes do from local stores. They collect and redistribute unsold food from stores at the end of the day and make sure that they're distributed to the homes of the local community. And so long as we've got solutions such as Olio, then I think that's 
that's absolutely fine if, if, if there's a surplus, but no waste. Do you think, Tessa, that Olio has influenced people's behaviours and made them really think about it? Or do you think that's just generally we're now made more aware? Um, well, we, we, we know that we have influenced people's behaviours because we do surveys um, with our users and across most metrics, well, in fact, all metrics, a significant portion of our user base are telling us that they are valuing food more, they're wasting food less, they are just consuming less in their lives, they're being more mindful about how they consume. It's sort of, it's one of those things that once you've had your eyes opened, it's really hard slash impossible to close them again. And then you start seeing food waste everywhere that you've just not seen before. And then once you start seeing food waste, you then start seeing waste more broadly. And so it takes you on this journey. But the end result is just a much better place for everybody. It, so once you decide to try and stamp out waste, then you end up you know, saving an awful lot of money and saving the world's resources. And it's just kind of a win-win for everybody. With COVID, actually, this is slightly going off piste, but um, being in London is that walking around a lot, I just see it as concrete, you know, just slabs of stuff just put on the earth, yeah. you know, roads and stuff. It's really, it's it's interesting how when you sort of take a step back, what, what things mean. I mean, my parents were war babies, so they were really, you know, as children, we had everything recycled constantly and unless it was covered in mould, it would be chucked in something and heated up and, you know, yeah. put a put something else on it to disguise it but um I, we have become so so spoiled just very quickly before we find out a bit more about you tessa where are your revenue streams coming from to support you so we generate revenue through charging businesses for the service we provide so at the moment businesses are paying a waste contractor to take that food off to landfill or at best anaerobic digestion mm -hmm. whereas instead now they pay us to ensure it's eaten so it's a win-win situation. It is, yes. So that that's how we started generating revenues. Uh, we are nowhere near profitable. So we've had to raise four rounds of financing. And next year we will be experimenting with monetization around a, a freemium model. So essentially introducing uh, subscription features within the app. Very exciting. So Tessa, what do you think has challenged you most so far and what have you learned from it? <sighs> challenge me most. Every day is a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, I think the big challenges, uh, there's a couple. So one is fundraising. Uh, mm. It's existential for a, a business like ours. And being a female founded, tech for good, pre-revenue, uh, remote first business. Uh, fundraising has been extremely challenging to say the least. I think the other uh, things sort of in the early days that's really challenging is imposter syndrome. And mm -hmm. you, you've never done it before. You don't literally just sort of don't really know what to do and you don't necessarily have that much confidence. Um, I have to say, though, now we're sort of five years in. I, I messaged Sasha a while back and I said, I think we've done our 10,000 hours now or whatever it's required <laughs> to be considered um, having some mastery or expertise. Uh, so I feel like we've sort of earned our stripes. But certainly in that first year, I, I, I felt laughable calling myself an entrepreneur when people asked me what I did. Um, so definitely a piece kind of around that confidence piece. Uh, and then also kind of product market fit, I guess I would say, is the thing that keeps me awake at night along with fundraising. Um, 
just constantly working to try and ensure that you're building a product that uh, meets the needs of people and that you can therefore grow with and how you can take that product that appealed to the early adopters and then um, expand and develop it to ensure that you kind of you know cross the chasm so to speak and start unlocking the early mainstream and then the mainstream users so it's it's a, finding product market fit is very challenging and what i've also realized is you don't i think necessarily sort of find it one day but it's just a continual journey of making sure that you've got product market fit for for that audience at that stage in your life cycle on the female fundraising side i mean i totally get you there when i had my chocolate business i found it so challenging and what's frustrating is such a small percentage of investment is made to women yeah it's criminal quite frankly um in the uk approximately one percent of all venture capital investment goes to female founded businesses 89% goes to male founded businesses uh, and the delta goes to mixed teams. And so just psychologically, when you're going out to fundraise and you also hear that you know 80% of startups fail at fundraising, plus then you factor on that sort of gender uh, bias or lens, mm -hmm. it, it can become pretty demoralizing going out into the market um, sort of when facing those odds. But the reality is, you know, we have we have done it. We've done it four times, and um, it's just taken an enormous amount of blood, sweat, tears, and just refusal to give up. But what makes me so angry about it is that that sort of structural inequality that faces not only female founders but just as importantly founders of color, yeah, and founders from different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. What what makes me so angry about um, the difficulties that we face is the fact that I think that for far too long, the startup world has been financing startups that solve the problem of the 1% and have just completely ignored the problems of the 99% in the world. And when I look at um, the founders who are trying to do good in the world, like we are, I am struck by just how diverse they are. And so that's why I get really frustrated about the lack of access to capital for diverse founders, because actually nine times out of 10, we're the ones that are solving the real problems that are facing humanity today. Well, let's hope it changes because I am all for it. Who or what has been the greatest influence and why? Gosh, that's a really tricky question. The honest answer is I don't have a single person I can point to or, or even a handful of people because I'm just one of those people I am constantly learning. I have this sort of insatiable curiosity uh, and desire to improve. So certainly over the past five years, I have become a an obsessive podcast listener. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, yeah, great. And I, I feel that... I've got so much inspiration. We actually have a sort of running joke in my team. Depending upon whether I'm running or cycling, it's called run-spiration or cycle-spiration. But um, I, this sort of when I'm uh, running or cycling and listening to podcasts that I have my breakthrough moments um, and I've just received so much incredible wisdom and learning through listening to the journeys of others. I love, I mean, I'm now addicted to podcasts. It's the, it's just so rewarding. You can go for a walk 
and learn while you're walking. And, and it's, I think it's the power of the person's voice. It makes the whole thing come so alive when they talk and, and share what they're sharing. It's the magic. Have you um, had any sort of serendipitous moments in your, you know, those sort of coffee spill moments where you end up sitting next door to someone in a cafe and chatting and then they open a door? Have you ever had any of those? Oh, well, I, th I think sort of, so we have as part of our sort of description of our company values that, that we believe in the power of karma and we really, really do. So we believe that if you just put out lots of good stuff in, in the world, then loads of good stuff will come back to you. It's just not necessarily directly linear. It will come back to you at some later uh, point in time. And so actually I had an example of that just today where I spent some time um, coaching and mentoring a female founder who's a couple of years sort of behind us on the journey. And I did that sort of several months ago. And then she's just sent me an email today and she's talking to a journalist from the Evening Standard and she'd love to connect me in with him because and and sort of get earlier included in that piece and that's just kind of one small example of how i think if you just reach out and try and help others then good stuff comes uh, come comes back to you and then we've also had great stuff happen to us that you know, to this day we still don't really fully understand how it happened so definitely a highlight moment is when uh, sasha and i were invited to join jamie oliver oh wow on his uh, friday night show which was just a very brilliant kind of surreal um, experience that just felt like it sort of dropped into our laps. Um, but I'm sure that it was probably as a result of 10 things we'd sort of done previously that collectively built up to, to make that happen. It makes it more rewarding, doesn't it? I love those things when they happen totally out of surprise or you think they're out of surprise, but then, as you say, they're probably 10 little things in the background that have led you yeah. to that moment. Um, Tessa, do you ever find that you give yourself a hard time? I I have I talk on the podcast quite a lot about the inner critic and that voice, which can get get be quite harsh at times. Do you find that you have that at all? And if you do, how do you keep it at bay? That is a really interesting question because actually, I think something that I'm pretty good at is keeping that inner critic at bay. Um, I really, really, really just don't think it's constructive to listen or spend too much time listening to that negative voice. Or indeed, I don't think it's constructive to be sort of beating yourself up or to be regretting stuff. That's all just a waste of energy and emotion. I just try and be just constantly keeping the momentum going forwards. Um, I'd say the area where I do suffer most, though, from that sort of critical voice is when it comes to fundraising, because I'm so aware of being a female founder and I'm sort of constantly double guessing myself to figure out what I should be saying. You know, should I be acting more like a guy or less like a guy in order to unlock that critical financing upon which Olio's fate is going to be completely determined. So that's where I have most anxiety is, is, is around sort of fundraising and, and how and who I should um, be whilst doing that. But otherwise, if your voice becomes slightly sort of dictatorial to you, you just think, right, onwards, moving onwards, you just think yeah. forwards. And, I, yeah, I, I've just, I'm, really kind of too, I'm too busy to yeah. listen to that sort of voice. <laughs> I just haven't got the time. I'm trying to juggle, sort of, you know, two kids and a husband and trying to keep myself fit and healthy and sane and uh, plus run earlier. So I haven't really got too much time to give to that negative voice, no. Well, actually, while you've shared that, Tessa, how do you juggle? Well, um, 
I've realized that sort of work-life balance is a bit of a myth and actually, and this might sound like sort of semantics, but it's this is where I've come to, is what you need to be looking for is a balanced life. Um, because I think as an entrepreneur, there isn't such a thing as work and there isn't such a thing as life. It's about having a balanced life. Mm-hmm. And I've just worked out a ton of hacks. And so some of those hacks, for example, or the first one, the mother of all hacks is remote working. So we've been remote first from day one. Um, that was because I had young kids. Sasha had young kids. We were both in different cities and neither of us wanted to spend time, waste time commuting to an office that we didn't want to be in. Plus, we didn't want the cost and the overheads. And so as a result of not commuting, I've immediately gained back five to 10 hours per week, which, you know, even if I split it, so 50-50 for the family and, and the company, we're all sort of ahead of the game. The second sort of hack that's directly linked to remote working is that I realized the, the first year of Olio was just horrific. It was just awful. I had a newborn baby. I had a toddler. Um, I had no childcare support. Um, I was living in a building site, sort of quite literally. We had no money, maximum anxiety. Um, and it was a very, and I wasn't exercising and it was just a very, very difficult year. I reached the end of that year and I just realized this is not sustainable. I'm going to, I'm just kind of going to burn out the next year cannot continue like this. And the, and the single thing that I did to sort of start that journey towards sustainability was to schedule exercise during my working day, mm-hmm. during what I traditionally considered the working day. So I put myself into a gym class, 9.30 on a Monday, 9.30 on a Friday. And for the first few weeks, I kept on expecting someone to sort of tap me on the shoulder and haul me out and tell me to get to work until I realized that actually I'm the boss. Um, and that just transformed my mental and physical uh, well-being. And, and so I still do that. I do my exercise during the working day whenever I can sort of fit it in because I'm always too tired in the evening. So that's a really important hack. The other one is I listen to podcasts whilst exercising. So actually, even though I'm exercising during the day, I am kind of working for Olio because I get all my inspiration. And then I do kind of batch cooking on the weekends whilst listening to podcasts, which is really, you know, so I kind of cook all of the family meals for the week. And so I feel like I know that I'm sort of um, giving my kids good food and I'm also trying to live by our attempts to be um, zero waste as well. So it's, it's just about experimentation and trying to figure out what works for you. I'm definitely with you building that exercise into your day. I do it. I go for quite long walks, but like you, because I'm listening to podcasts and I'm learning and I'm researching, I'm yeah, sort of semi-working. difficult, and, does it? No, <laughs> and it's just, you know, and it's a breeze. And, and I totally get you on that balanced life thing is that there will never be, if, if you are like you or I, where you've got it in your DNA that you've got to be doing your own thing, it is going to be 24 hours. It's just the thing that you balance it, you live with it. It's part of you and, and it doesn't feel like work. So although you're working your backside off, it's actually what yeah. you want to do. It's your mission. It's your sort of vocation it's it sort of feels like you've got a wetsuit on that really fits well and you're you're sort of with it exactly so quick fire round before i think we've really deserved our chocolate break uh mm-hmm. optimist or pessimist optimist always introvert extrovert ambivert well i don't know what an ambivert is but it's I have, a mix a mix it's a i mix. think oh yeah. well so in that case i um, i have been struggling through lockdown to figure out whether i'm an extroverted introvert or an introverted extrovert and i haven't come to any conclusion on that so it sounds like i was missing a word which is ambivert <laughs> so now i know problem solved thank you I, I loved it when i came across it i thought yes i like that word perfectionist or non-perfectionist Ooh, tricky one. I think I'm inherently a perfectionist, but I learned a long time ago that, you know, I think 
what's the saying? Perfectionism is the devil of done or something like that. And especially for a startup, 80% is good enough. Get it done, get it out, learn, move on. Finally, early bird or night owl? Hmm. Well, this has changed. Um, I've recognised that as I'm getting older, my body clock seems to be changing. So I was always previously in my 20s and 30s a night owl. And now I'm finding myself sort of switching over to becoming more of an early bird. So now we are allowed stuck into our chocolate. I hope you have got Hurrah. your bar ready. I so just before we t tuck into this, I have to just pop in um, a little bit about the Hope and Patience chocolate bar, which is a giveaway. So just remember to subscribe to the HMP newsletter to be in with a chance of winning my award-winning milk, lemon and sea salt chocolate bar, which will be ready within days. So back onto Tessa's chocolate. Tessa has picked the Lint Dark Mint chocolate bar. And when I asked Tessa uh, what chocolate she would like to have on the show, she shared with me that she had a haul of 30 bars that she'd bought a few weeks ago, yeah. which fascinated me. So I was like, well, how many are you going to have left? And which one do you that, think that, you're going to set that's aside? That's a balanced life right there. <laughs> so Tessa, tell me why lint and why the mint? Well, you see, so... Um, as I think I've alluded to, uh, myself and my family have been on a journey for the past couple of years to try and lead an increasingly zero waste lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so I've been just trying to stamp out uh, single use plastic. And obviously, 90% of chocolate, unfortunately, is wrapped in the stuff. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that if you buy from Lint, uh, their shop directly, you can buy bars of their chocolate, which is in cardboard and uh, foil, both foil, of which can yeah. be easily recycled. It's absolutely top notch chocolate uh, and yeah when lockdown was announced the first thing I did was put in a massive order of a whole array of chocolate bars so that I would I would be covered and your family don't tuck into them too uh, they Secretly. do they, they they do but we've all got different preferences the kids have actually asked me bless them to actually put them sort of up high and out of sight because where they were before was too easy for them to get to so uh, <laughs> too lethal they're very honest of them <laughs> yeah no i do foil and, and box with my bars as well i love it because you get the crunch of the sort of foil and then the cardboard yeah. um but it is a delicious bar and that definitely has given me a bit more energy well and i think just on the on that sort of the the importance of, of foil versus plastic mm. i read a while ago that a typical uh, british person consumes the equivalent of a credit card of plastic every week Wow. Um, and yeah, which is a pretty horrific thought. Um, and when you just think, you know, look at how much of our food is just smothered in plastic, then um, it's really positive to be able to try and get stuff without it. It is. And also for all those lovely chocolatiers who don't use fallen cardboard boxes or cartons, um, I know that you use paper, recycled paper and stuff like that. So there are plenty of... Um, chocolate people out there who do some very um sustainable packaging okay so i'm still eating my chocolate but tessa back to work for you yeah what are your thoughts on the words success and failure Whew. um well you kind of catch me on the hop here um so success i think for the first half of my life i had no idea what success meant for me i didn't really know myself and so I allowed other people's definition of success 
to be my definition of success. And that, I guess, was what sort of took me in the direction of the corporate career that I did. I've now sort of taken back um, success and the definition of it for myself. And I'm kind of owning it. And as a result, I'm just much, much happier. Um, and then failure is something that I just don't really dwell on because the reality is that everything happens for a reason and you can learn something from everything and it's just really exhausting and counterproductive to beat yourself up about stuff the whole time. So I do reflect on every single failure, but I just kind of take the learning and then I just move on. And with your well-being, Tessa, how do you take time out? I mean, you say that you, you fit it into your day, um, but do you do something specific on each day or do you chop and change it? Um, I just really try and kind of listen to myself, my body and my mind and just how I'm feeling. So the critical thing is doing it during the day and during the work day. And this has been a really, really important thing that both Sasha and I role model for the whole company now because most people when they join earlier they can't quite believe that we really mean it and it's like no no we do if you have a yoga class you want to go to at three o'clock in the afternoon you want to swimming at 11 or walk your dog at 12 do it mm -hmm. um and, and that for me was just it was just such a massive unlock versus trying to haul myself to a gym um at the end of a very long day um and this way sort of works better for family as well um listening to podcasts as well I just find uh, I find very reassuring because they they do reassure me that I'm, I'm sort of not alone and the struggles that I have are actually very very common and other people are sharing them as well and I've also stopped beating myself up or making myself feel guilty about taking time for myself um, because I have realized that actually all of my best quality work is done not when I'm at my desk. It is done when I'm going for a run or when I'm baking or cooking or walking the dog or reading a book or listening to a podcast. And so whilst those things don't look like work, actually they are my most productive time for Olio. So I've stopped feeling guilty about taking them. And um, Tessa, what triggers your stress and um, how does it affect you physically, mentally? Fundraising has without a doubt been the biggest stress it's been you know everyone tells you it's awful and it's been sort of a thousand times worse uh, than awful um and so that has taken a massive toll on me although i'm not the first few times i wasn't necessarily aware of it when i was going through it but i then went away on a course and i met a whole bunch of other founders and we had a space to talk and i just kind of burst into tears and i was like wow okay i think maybe this fundraising thing has impacted me more than i had uh, had recognized but what i try and do is just stick to what i've now discovered works which is the exercise thing and listening to podcasts and they sort of keep me sane and i recognize that you go through periods of time which are just super intense and then I try not to feel guilty if I will you know, spend a week and just work a bunch of half days coming off the back of a really intense period of time. And so I think a lot of it is just about freeing yourself up and not making yourself feel guilty about something. And do you manage to sleep well? Ah, uh, I've become obsessed by sleep. <laughs> uh, I listen to a podcast. <laughs> it's a theme here. Which podcast do you listen Or any. I mean, oh, it's not God, a specific I mean, I literally listen to hundreds. But this one was um, with Matthew Walker, the guy who wrote the book, Why, Why We Sleep. And that was just a, an enormous revelation 
for me about the importance and the power of sleep. And so off the back of that, I went and treated myself for my birthday to buy the Aura Ring, which is a sleep tracker. Mm -hmm. And so each morning I can see sort of how my sleep, all my sleep data, my sleep variables, and I'm now learning what things impact my sleep. So my sleep is something, again, I think there's so many dangerous stereotypes in the world of startups. And one of them is that you've got to work every hour that God sends and burn the candle at both ends. And if you don't, you're a slacker and you won't succeed. But I'm afraid all the data in the science points to the exact opposite. And investing in your sleep is investing in your performance and therefore your success. I wish all this had come out. I mean, I have I set up my business back in 2007 and there's absolutely nothing around at all. And, you know, you, and, and it's just, you sort of think, oh, I wish this information was around then. Yeah. But it, yeah, sleep is like gold dust. I'm, I have real rituals before I go to sleep. Um, you know, I have to have a bath. I have to have this, that and the other. And, you know, it's, as you say, it is gold dust and it's gold dust to how we perform each day. So it is it is something yeah. that's important. Do you have a book that you would recommend to the listeners at all? Gosh, well, because I'm obsessed with startups, uh, the book that I always recommend for anyone who hasn't read it is The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And that really is a methodology and an approach to launching and growing a business that we've really sort of drunk the Kool-Aid on and have found that it works. And then for anyone who's super early doors, I would recommend a book called The Mom Test. So that's spelled M-O-M by, I think, Rob Fitzpatrick. And that's just a brilliant, short, but very challenging read about how to do sort of market research to make sure that you get the real answers and you don't just hear what you want to hear. Oh, wow. Those are two that I've definitely got to get reading on. What, just to, to close, Tessa, where have you had to have um, hope in your life? And also, where have you had to hang on to patience too? Well, I have to have hope every single time I read or listen to anything about the climate crisis. Um, I find it very, very hard work when I truly engage with the data and when I truly engage with our very flawed systems, whether it be capitalism or democracy um, or social inequality, etc., I find that really, really hard not to despair or panic or grieve. Um, and I do work really, really hard to try and stay hopeful and positive and optimistic. Uh, and then your second question was around patience. I guess sort of, I'm implementing patience every single day in our wildest fantasies. Olio was going to grow like Instagram. You know, we sort of wake up one day and suddenly 30 million people were using it and then 300 million and, and onwards and upwards. Um, and what I, Sasha and I have realized is that there's no such thing as a silver bullet. There's just a ton of lead bullets and you've just got to keep on sort of slogging away at it. And in particular, because what we're doing is really challenging. We're trying to encourage consumer behavior change. And that is so much harder than just flogging people random crap. Uh, and so that requires an enormous amount of patience as you just test and iterate and learn. And then also kind of to a certain extent, got to wait for the world to catch up with where you're at as well. So where can the listeners find you and the team? And also, would you share the um, volunteer side as well? 
ancestor? Yes. So if you Google Olio, so that's spelled O-L-I-O, you will be able to uh, find us. You can also find us in the App Store and in Google Play. And we're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, etc. So a big part of where we've uh, got to today is thanks to our 50,000 volunteers who have reached out to offer to help spread the word about Olio in their local community. And so there's a couple of ways in which you can volunteer. You can either be a digital ambassador, which is spreading the word online, or you can be a community hero, which involves um, giving out letters and posters and flyers in your local community. And then the other type of volunteering we have is as a food waste hero. So these are the people who collect the unsold food from the local businesses and redistribute it via the app. And I would really encourage you to download the app, obviously, but also explore Olio's website because I lost myself in it when I was researching Tessa. It's it's full of really good referenced pieces on food waste. And, and there are so many websites out there that nothing is really referenced, so you don't know if it's fact or fiction, but it's full of facts. And uh, it's an education in itself, so do definitely check it out. So I would love to say the hugest of thank yous, Tessa, for sparing your valuable time. I, you know, I just, I'm a sort of, I can't think what the word is, of an evangelist of, of Olio. Oh, thank it, you. It is just superb. And you and Sasha and your team and all the wonderful work you're doing is brilliant. So thank you, thank you. Thank you. So before I go, it's time for my book recommendation and quote for this episode. The book is Jailbirds by Mim Skinner. Um, many of you will know that I um, support ex-offenders uh, mentor for the charity Find Cell Work. And this book is about women in prison. And, you know, the stats of, of women in prison, 48% of them are usually there due to supporting the drug use of someone else. And 46% of women in prison report having attempted suicide once in their lifetime. Um, there's loads of facts. It's brilliantly written. Mim went into the prisons. She worked with the women prisoners. And it's a, it's a very educational but fulfilling read. So that's the book I'm recommending. The quote is by um, Arianna Huffington. Fearlessness is like a muscle. I know from my own life that the more I exercise it, the more natural it becomes to not let my fears run me. A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to subscribe to get the latest episode. And if you're enjoying the show, it would be truly fab if you could rate and review it. Any book recommendations, quotes, songs can be found in the show notes and on the website too. So until the next time, however tough your times get, keep that inner sparkle you have open patience with amelia rope join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk find amelia on facebook at hope and patience or on twitter and instagram at amelia underscore rope